Just if you're brand new, uh, my name is Trev. I am the pastor here. Pete chairs our our board, so as far as the government's concerned, uh, he's the fall guy, not me. Totally designed by me. Um, Just kidding. Uh, He takes responsibility for a lot of what goes on here as the chair, and so uh, it's, it's always good to have that coming from him. But let me say, as your pastor, as your shepherd, I think Pete nailed it when he said this is an issue of worship if we have those who are not participating in the financial uh, burdens of our church family. We always say in our family, you know, when you have a when you have a one year old, you don't really expect that one year old to come and bring something to the family meal. Right. Like you're not like, you know, get off your lazy crib and, you know, come and make a meal. But when you've got a 10 year old you expect that that 10-year-old could take their plate to the counter. And you expect that 16-year-old to maybe make a meal once in a while. Um, But the truth is, in a lot of churches all over the place, we have 35, 40-year-olds who sit with their hands in their pockets and say, what's for supper? And churches are sometimes like this. um, That if this is, Urban Grace is your home, we do actually expect that you participate in the family meal. That's, that's how we look at it. This is a, a participation of worship. We're on mission together. We're not on mission for you n- anymore as much as you are on mission with us to our city. So we want you to take that very seriously. And, and, and this means, yes, that we are paying attention to who gives because we want to keep everyone accountable. Yes, that's a Christian word. We want to keep you accountable to uh, the mission that uh, and we, we understand that if this is the family table, like if this is the place where you receive your sustenance, we would say just participate in helping us make meals for others who are not yet here. Uh, so it's a good word from Pete. Um, again, we're very grateful for the kind and generous donations. Forty percent of, of what we experience happens because someone else who doesn't eat from our table provides for us. I want that to sink in a bit for us that this is, we should be very gracious and find in our pockets what we can do to, to be as completely self-sufficient as possible. So we want to move that way. We want to challenge you as a family member, uh, you to take that seriously. So thanks, Pete, for bringing us up to date. Okay. Um, we're going to get into First Peter. I know you prayed. Let me pray again and ask Jesus for help from me personally. Jesus, thank you again for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for everything that you have given to us. Thank you that you are generous, that you didn't give us 60% of yourself. You gave us 100% of yourself and your son, that you are overly generous with us. And Jesus, now would you continue just as an act of generosity, give your spirit to us so that we can hear from you. I've prepared words to say, Jesus, but I cannot bring the power of your spirit with those words. Only you can. And so I'm asking that you would do this as an act of generosity and grace toward us, Jesus, knowing full well we don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. Um, So help me to say what you want me to say. Help me to say it well. Help me to say it in a way that is understandable for everyone here this morning, Jesus. In your awesome name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're new... Uh, we're in a, even if you're not new, we're still in a series called Tested. 
And this series is based upon the book of 1 Peter that is written specifically to a group of people in in kind of the early, about 2,000 years ago, to a number of people whom the author has likely never met, but there are a lot of similarities that he would have with them. One of the things that... um, He writes to a people who are suffering for their faith. I've said this a number of times. They're probably getting killed for their faith, and they're certainly getting persecuted. They're getting executed and persecuted for their faith, very likely. And so this presents a number of challenges, because what happens when we get persecuted or when we get tested, we find out what's actually in our hearts. We find out whether or not that faith really exists. Every week I've kind of brought in some sort of an illustration as to kind of testing. Well, I'm a big Stan Peters fan. I love football. I like local football. Okay, I'm a CFL guy. And one of the things I heard on the radio when some of the players or the coach, I can't remember who, was being interviewed, they asked him about the, the, the Stan Peters, the team I cheer for. Some of you don't know that there is a football team in our town. There is. They're good this year. Okay, they're winning a lot of games, and they've almost wrapped up home field advantage. But it's easy when you've wrapped up home field advantage and the games left over don't change your status and standings, there's a chance that you just kind of coast in. And, and so what coaches don't like is if you just kind of coast into the playoffs. What they really like is as you're going into the playoffs, you face a series of what? tests. You play a tough team, you come from behind, you play uh, without your, all your players, those kind of things. And the coaches will actually say, when the games in the last couple of weeks are really strenuous, they say this, it's good now that we are being tested for the playoffs. And this is exactly the kind of people that first Peter is written to. They're written to people who maybe at some point have been challenged and have thought about giving up on their faith. And Peter says, no, wait a second here. I want you to understand something very clearly. These tests are not God's way of making fun of you. They're God's way of helping you to understand what's really in your heart. Some of us often think tests are God's big joke so he can make fun of us. Or test her so that God can find out what's in our hearts. Actually, I believe that God knows what's in our hearts. He gives us tests so we can find out what's in our hearts. But many times, we're startled by what's in our hearts. Anyone ever thought you had more money in your bank account? You went online, you were startled at what was actually there. And then you're like, wait a second. Then you're like, oh, it's just bill payments and someone spent money, right? Like, it startles us sometimes, our faith. We feel like we have this great faith. We go to this great church and we, we lose a job or a girlfriend or a friend or something happens to us and suddenly we're devastated and we realize we actually had nothing there. Our faith account was in the red. Or is it the black? I don't know. I'm not the finance guy. I'm glad you explained Q1 and Q2. I thought you were talking about football quarters for a second there. But this is actually what Peter is talking to. And so we're in a similar situation in my mind. You know, it's funny. I've described going through this series as kind of walking through the mud. Ever walk through the mud in the spring and you're just kind of like, you walk like this because you're scared if you take big steps that your rubber boots will stick in the mud. 
That's how it's felt going through this series. I don't think this is an accident. I don't think it just happened that our church faces a series of tests within our church as we're going through the series on testing. I think Jesus says, this is a great time for, uh, for me to explain what's actually happening to you. We're even finding this organizationally. We're facing a number of tests that are challenging a lot of things about us. I think this is a good word for us. And our text this morning is, is so full of these images, I'm going to have a hard time finishing before 4 o'clock this afternoon. So if you're new, hopefully you have supper plans, but forget about dinner plans. Okay, I'm going to read it for you. I'm, that's a joke. You can laugh at that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible this morning, would you put up your hand and one of the ushers will, will grab a Bible for you. We're actually down on Bibles uh, so if that's your only Bible, keep it. But if it's not, kindly return it so someone next week who's forgetful can use it. So First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And this is what it says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, excuse me, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has actually become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are. God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, sojourners are, 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 are like landed immigrants and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a good word for us. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. So full of great images. And, and one of the things that, that initially some commentators and some scholars actually put the first couple of verses back with chapter 1. And so in some ways we have to kind of take a, a careful look at chapter 1 and we have to always find out what the therefore is therefore, right? We said that last week, but this is, this is we have to find out what these Scriptures are there for. Because Peter has, has said, okay, this is what you believe. This is, this is who Jesus is. We talk about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is everything to us. Everything that we say hinges on what we believe about Jesus. We don't just want to generally say God. We want to say Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to pay 
the price of our sin with his sacrifice, Jesus claimed to rise again from the dead, and he did rise again from the dead. That's what we believe. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not possible to be a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus was God and that you do not believe that He rose again from the dead and that you do not believe that He paid the price for your sin. You can follow Christian morals, but you can't be a Christian unless you believe that. And Peter says, once you believe that, this makes a difference on how you live. You can't believe that And act however you want. Actually, when Jesus saves you from your sin, He also saves you to His mission. In a similar way that He came on mission to this world, He came from heaven, became man, was God, became man. We become Christians, are on mission for Him. And Peter says it makes a difference to your conduct. So therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because, because what happens is, when we become Christians, we say, Yes, I believe that. I believe that about Jesus Christ. But then we get called to follow a certain kind of conduct and it tests out our passion for Jesus. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that it's easier to say you believe in Jesus than to act upon that belief in Jesus? Anyone ever struggle and been like, oh man, if Jesus just let me do whatever I want, it'd just be so much easier. But Peter says basically in 2.1 that believing this will test your passion for him. And so he uses these these phrases of, of put off and kind of put on. Okay, put off and put on. And one of the ways we know that we are Christians is when our passion is tested, we know if we're willing to put things off for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's that's one of the ways that Jesus tests us and our passion for him. He says, okay, you believe in me? Now, put off this. Graphically, he says, put off these kind of clothes. Uh, Last last month... um, my little brother and I, uh, he took me to one of the tallest mountains uh, in the Rocky Mountains here. Um, and he, uh, he had me go up one of, one of these tall mountains. And I've always wanted to climb a really tall mountain. It's been on my list for a long, long time. But I noticed that the further up <laughs> I climbed in the mountain, the more it tested my passion to get to the top of the mountain. Right. As I'm climbing every kind of 20 minutes, it's kind of like, okay, are you really want, do you really want to go higher? And I did, I did. But I noticed that as I, as I climbed, as I continued to climb, I noticed that it it continued to strengthen my passion for getting to the top. And so this is what happens. These things are natural within us. We have to fight them. We have to wait. Peter would say we wage war against these things. But as the more you follow Jesus, the more it wages war inside your heart. And the more you have to deliberately put off things that are not in line with what we what what Jesus is and 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 his character. But Peter is saying, if we love Jesus, we would put these things off. What do we put off? Well, he says we put off malice. We put off malice. I don't know if you guys use the word malice a lot. <laughs> um, 
probably not at work. You're like, oh man, that, that person's malicious. We use that for software, right? A malicious software is what? Software that looks to destroy. Right? That's what malicious software is. But some of us are actually really malicious in the way that we act in our communities. We're looking for the negative things. Right? We're looking for all of the little chinks in someone else's armor. We're looking for ways that we can criticize them. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I have the spiritual gift of criticism. That I am unbelievably accurate in my ability to criticize somebody's wardrobe. Like, it's awesome. I'm amazing at it. I can do it at the drop of a hat. That's within me. You know what Peter says? Put that off. Maliciousness is hoping for the worst in someone. Have you ever done that at work? Where you just don't like this person, something they've done, and you just, oh, I just hope, I just hope the boss comes in when they're doing that. Right? This happens all the time when you're driving. Right? You're late somewhere, you're just speeding like crazy, but then, you know, you're hoping that the cops aren't at the side of the road stopping you. But then when someone else is late and they're screaming by you, what do you hope for? Oh, I hope there's a cop waiting and catches that person. That's maliciousness. That's malice in our hearts. We hope someone else gets caught, we just don't hope we get caught. See, it's, it's, it's in you, it's fighting, it's waging war in you, and you're going to have to deliberately see it and put it off. What else? Deceit. It's doing things with ulterior motives. I know nobody struggles with this stuff in this room. You ever done something with an ulterior motive? Oh, that was really nice of you to do. This happens all the time between spouses. Thanks for doing the dishes. What do you want? Right? Thanks for cleaning up. Thanks for coming home on time. What is it that you're looking for? It's doing things not with a pure motive, but with ulterior motives. That's manipulation. That's control. That's actually something that God does not do. All of these things are stuff that God does not do. Also, these are particularly community-destroying. If you look closely at them, they just beat at community. They destroy community. If, if everyone in our city groups acted malicious, deceitful, hypo, hypocritical, and envious, we would have no city groups. They would be destroyed in no time. So he says, put off ulterior motives. Here's a phrase that we use now in modern culture, put off passive aggressiveness. Ooh, that cuts deep, doesn't it? Passive aggressiveness. What's passive aggressive? Saying things, being really manipulative, not saying it strongly to someone's face, but saying it strongly behind someone's back. Surprise, this destroys community. Anyone ever dealt with someone who's passive-aggressive? What do they like to deal with? Tough to be in community with those people, isn't it? Thirdly, hypocrisy. Put off hypocrisy. Here's what this means. Don't pretend to be good. <laughs> This is deep stuff. Don't pretend to be good. Some of you come here every Sunday pretending to be good. I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. We know you're not good. We're assuming that. That's why the gospel is such good news. Is it's for people who are broken, not for people who have everything together. 
So if you respond with every single time, I'm doing great, we know better. That's not true. It's not saying you have to be good all the time or that you can't be good sometimes. It's just saying don't pretend to be good when you're really not. It doesn't actually help community. Do you know I have lost friendships over this? A friend of mine, I got so sick and tired of every time I called him up and I said, how are you doing? I'm doing amazing. I was like, seriously, you can't possibly do amazing every time I call. I lost a friendship over it because I was just, I was like, that's not even true. There's no way. It's hypocrisy is what it is. When you're doing good, tell somebody. But, but, but if you're not doing good, ask for some help. This builds community. Hypocrisy drives community away. You actually isolate yourself from community when you continually. So what do you have to do? Because Jesus is your identity, because Jesus is the one who tells you your real stature in life, you don't have to be good. See how the gospel actually helps you to put off hypocrisy. Fourthly, envy. Envy. Whoa. Anyone ever struggled with envy? I wish I had that kind of marriage. I wish I had a marriage. I wish I had a boyfriend. I wish I had a girlfriend. I wish I had a job. I wish I had money. We can spend a lot of our time in community wishing what other people had. What does Peter say? Put that off. God's not envious. Jesus is the the, the least bit envious. Put that off. What do we put on? Okay. What do we put on? Peter says, instead, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're, we're fortunate here at Urban Grace because this should make a lot of sense to about seven couples in our church. Okay? And for those of you who aren't paying attention, you've probably heard one of those newborns cry for milk. Okay? So this is a beautiful image. What Peter is saying is, is what, what do you put off is, is all this stuff. What do you put on is the Word of God. You crave the Word of God like a newborn craves milk. So just get this image in your head. What's a newborn like when they're hungry? What are they like? Are they like, you know what, Mom? Hey, if you got a moment, I would, I would just love just maybe, maybe even five minutes of your time. That's not what a newborn does. A newborn is like, I want it now, and I will scream until I get what I need right now. Peter's not saying, be a baby. Some, some people are like, yeah, this is awesome, be a baby. No, he says, crave the Word of God like a baby craves milk. Crave it. What does a baby think? Does a, does a baby go, well, I, I, you know, just hold on, Mom. Let me find out if your milk is organic. Let me find out if it's, you know, grain-fed. No. Just give me food. What's a baby thinking about? Feeding. I need to be fed. They actually, they don't even have a choice in this. They're just God made them so that they, they literally, that's all they think about. Okay? Later on in life, some things never change, right? I hang around guys all the time, and 
it happens. It's like, I'm not, hey, how's it going? I'm not actually thinking about anything else but eating right now from getting fed. Okay? It still happens. Some things never die. But what I don't want, sometimes this passage, we hear it and it's like, okay, read your Bible more. Actually, I want to change your mindset on this. I want you to think not about reading. I want you to think about feeding. Some of us, they hear this and like, oh, well, you mean I need to read my Bible more. I'm not actually saying that, although you will have to read your Bible more. I'm saying think in terms of being fed, not in terms of getting read. Does that make sense? Because some of us, very easy, we're natural readers, right? This is easy for us. We're like, oh, this just means read more. No, it probably means you need to stop reading and start applying what you've read. Some of us struggle to read. I can't quite relate to that because I'm naturally kind of bookish. Okay, that's kind of been driven out of me in church planting. But I'm naturally kind of bookish. I like to read. I'll read anything. I always have a book on my phone so that if I'm caught in a lineup anywhere, I can read. I've been caught reading a book at stoplights. That's how much I like to read. Okay, don't tell anybody about that. I like to read. But you know what I need more than, I, than just reading the Scripture? I need to feed on Scripture. Like I notice how, how easy it is to read Twitter, Facebook feeds as opposed to feeding on the Word of God. So I'm not any different than you are. Think of feeding, not reading. What is a newborn like toward getting fed? I will find any way possible to get this in my system. That's why kids, you got to keep stuff out of reach when they're kids because that doesn't die very easily in them. They will put anything in their mouth because they're just so used to feeding, right? Hey, there's a book. Obviously, it belongs in my mouth. Eugene Peterson actually used that image to help us think about our Bibles. He said, eat this book. Pretend that this is how you get your food. Because Jesus says it actually is. Because when he was in the desert and Satan was tempting him, he's like, you think I just, I need food to survive? I don't need food to survive. I need God's word to survive. That's how he did battle. It wasn't just information for Jesus either. He fed on this. So, Peter says, you'll find out some of your, test your it, it always tests our passion for him. Because some of us just have treated the intake of scripture as something I should do, because that's what Christians do. And I think what Peter says is, this will test your passion, but, but find a way to, to get it in. So here's my advice to you, um, find a way to get it in your system. Do whatever works for you. Got a lot of different ways that this can be done. Um, one of the ways that I use is a journal Bible. Let me explain this very carefully to you. It's a Bible with a journal in it. You know why I use it? Yeah, brilliant. The reason why I use it is because sometimes I read words on a page and they just don't digest into my system. So I've got to chew on it a bit. And here's how I chew on it. I use the little margins to write questions down, ideas, thoughts, things that occurred to me. 
questions I have for Jesus, personal. I started this because at one point I wanted my children to kind of read it. And then I thought, well, maybe this will be kind of useful for me too. Surprise. But one of the things I think I still get caught is to getting information out of this book. Instead of this, this week, one of the things that Jesus reminded me over and over again, he goes, you know this book is about me, right? You know I'm not just trying to get you to read a boring book. So you have knowledge about stuff that used to happen historically. He says, you know this book is really about a relationship with me. And so I want you to think of like you're in relationship with Jesus because you are. And this is information about Jesus. But it's not information that just lays flat on a page. It's information that comes alive. You know, when you have a a, a new passion in life, like let's just say you have a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. Honestly, you are one of the best researchers in the world at that point in time. You research what music they like. You research what kind of places they like to eat. You research what they like to wear. You research their friends. You creep them on Facebook. You do all of this stuff. You're just passionate about finding. And then as as time goes on, you kind of sometimes forget. You think you're in a marriage as opposed to you're in a relationship with a person. You think of yourself as a husband, but not as a friend face to face. Don't forget that you're feeding a relationship, not brain cells. Okay. It'll test your passion. So then Peter moves on. And we're going to go a little bit faster, hopefully, through these. But Peter talks about a tested Savior. He says, as you come to him, And he describes very richly for us who Jesus is. He says he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now this is cool imagery. And if you read and have fed on Scripture, you will have some of these images actually in your mind. This is why this kind of stuff can be very valuable. Is that... This idea of spiritual house and and building with stones is actually very valuable in the Old Testament. Because for a long, long time, um, the, the, the presence of God only existed in particular places. In, 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 first it starts out like in the Garden of Eden. It's, It's a particular place. The presence of God just isn't the same outside of the Garden. That's why it was so devastating for Adam and Eve to leave it, is because there was the presence of God, but it wasn't kind of in this really tangible way anymore. It was difficult to hear from the Lord. And then, and then through time, you know, God kind of built and developed this idea of where his presence would lie. And it starts with, with Moses, and, and they build this ark that has a special significance. And the ark is the place where the presence of God goes. That's why when they go out to battle, they carry the ark forward. In front of them, because that's like God going before them. If our God is for us, who can be against us? We just sang about that. And then, and then this tabernacle, which is like a collapsible tent in the wilderness, is built so that, that the presence of God can exist kind of in the desert. And then King David says, I want to make something kind of more, just better for God. I, I want to do better. We could do better than a collapsible tent. 
I want to make a building for God. And so he, he said, God says, well, you're not going to do it because honestly, you've sinned a lot. So I'm going to leave it to uh, the next, your son, Solomon. He's actually going to sin a lot too, but he's going to be the one who builds the, the temple. And he does. And then the temple gets destroyed and rebuilt with what? With stones. With stones. Every time the temple is built, every time anything was built, it's built out of stone. That's how walls are built. That's how major structures are built. That's why a lot of these places still exist today because they were built out of stone. And this is exactly what Peter says. He goes, everyone thought Jesus was kind of a joke, but he's actually like the cornerstone. He's the one that you just, you put, you lay everything else off your foundation off of that. I was a construction guy for a little while. We don't have cornerstones anymore, but I do know this. That the cribbers, the guys who created the foundational walls, had to make it right on or else the entire house was off. And there were times when we built a house and we're like, this house is crooked. And and some guys would be like, no, actually the house isn't crooked. It's the foundation that's crooked. I said, what can you do about that? They said, nothing. Once the foundation is in place, you have to destroy the whole thing and start over again. You cannot. That's how important that is. You have to be bang on when it comes to foundations. And God says, you know who Jesus is? He is the foundation on everything that I'm going to do. Right here, I just want to take a pause and explain to everyone again that this is why we say every Sunday, this is about Jesus. Even if you don't necessarily connect all the dots, we will say this publicly. At some point, this goes back to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. You can just assume that even if you can't follow the path very easily. Everything that we do at Urban Grace is on the basis of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. What's really interesting is that Jesus or or, or Peter doesn't change this metaphor, this idea of building houses, a spiritual house. He keeps the metaphor. He just changes what it's about. So Jesus is still building a spiritual house except he's doing it with you and me. He's not using stones. He's not using physical structures like he used to. He's using you and me. This is amazing. Like We should be like, wow, what in the world? This is why it's so important that we go in line with who Jesus is. It's because that's what he's choosing to build his spiritual house on. Now, when I was a kid, this was very confusing because I was told that the church building was the place where God was. As if the other places were the place where just we were. And then as I began to read the New Testament, it confused me how someone could say, you can't run around in the sanctuary because that's sacred. That's where God is. And I read in First Peter that buildings aren't really where God resides anymore. He resides in people. Now, it may be this that we were running too fast and wrecking things. That's fair. But this is why we can meet in a theater and it doesn't have to have any sacred significance for us. Because wherever the people of God are, that's where the spiritual house of God is. Wherever, wherever Christians are gathered, that's part of the building of God. This is why what you do with your life matters. 
especially outside of a Sunday service. This is why, as Christians, we cannot act one way when we're here in a service with our hands raised or one hand raised, depending on your conviction of how you sing, or hands in your pockets. If you're more conservative like me, I'm kind of a finger point guy, okay? But this is why it's confusing to people want to act that way here, but not that way anywhere else. It's because... God is building a spiritual house. And so we bring spiritual sacrifices. We still sacrifice. We just don't sacrifice animals anymore. Instead, we sing about Jesus as a way of sacrificing. Instead, we act holy as a way of sacrificing. Instead, we be kind as a sacrifice. Instead, we give money as a sacrifice to the mission of God. See how this works? Nothing has changed, but everything has changed. If that makes sense. And so we need to carefully think about how we as living stones are being built up because we as living stones rest on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Peter goes into this great imagery that, again, roots itself deep in the entire story of God. And this is what he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. So he said, this is what stones do. Okay, this is how stones kind of build up the church. And so I've, I've kind of taken them down um, one by one. So first of all, he says we are a chosen race. Now, some of us kind of, the, the power of that's taken out because we see race. But this is amazing what Peter says. He said our ethnicity is no longer based upon our skin color, our culture, or our language. It's on the basis of who Jesus Christ is. That's our ethnicity. Some of us have great uh, identification with our own ethnicity. We're, we're deeply rooted in who we are ethnically, and we like that. We're comfortable there. But as spiritual stones being built up to the house of God, Peter says, your ethnicity no longer defines who you are. Jesus defines who you are. Your ethnicity is now you love Jesus and follow him on a part of his kingdom. You know, it's interesting when you, when you look at our city that's, that's, that's really diverse ethnically. You see certain activities, certain ways people act that are on the basis of their ethnicity. Right? You, you don't realize how, how racist you can even think sometimes until the way you do things ethnically clashes with the way someone else does things ethnically. And, and sometimes you just think that your way of doing things ethnically is the right way and everyone else is backwards. And just like we have certain things that we do because of, on the basis of our ethnicity, Peter says, you act certain ways based upon the ethnicity you have in Jesus Christ. We are a chosen race. 
He's speaking to people that are Jews and speaking to people that are Gentiles. And typically those two have not got along very well. You don't have to look very far back in history to find that. He said, secondly, here's what you are. You are a royal priesthood. Now, I want to take some time here again as we kind of hit the back nine of what we're talking about here this Sunday. We are a royal priesthood. I've often wondered what the deal is with royalty, right? Like, isn't it amazing, like, you know, uh, the royal family in England has a baby and it's just like news, it's big news. I'm not sure how it impacts us. I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just saying, you know, it seems like we're, we're really far removed from that. But what's amazing is we still have this penchant for like royalty. What do they do? And, and people are like, what do they do? They're royalty. They don't need to do anything. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I, I, I get confused. What, what, a royal, like, what, what do they do? They, well, they're the queen. They're the king. They're the prince. They, they just are royalty. That's just, that's who they are. They don't have that on the basis of what they do. My kids act like queens and they're not royalty. My kids act like princesses, but that doesn't make them into princesses. But Peter says you are a royal priesthood. Your royalty. Priests are, are something that we need to like, carefully look at in the Old, Old Testament scriptures. Because the idea of a priest is, is a very high honor. I'm, I'm personally reading through the book of Joshua right now. And it's, it's the story of, of how all of God's people get land. And what's interesting is that the priests in the community do not get land as their inheritance. It seems to me like kind of a raw deal. (laughs) Like Joe Schmo, who doesn't work in the church, gets three or four acres, but so-and-so pastor does not. But that's because God wanted to really separate what the priest actually did and said, you know, you're you're not going to have land to pass on your children. You're going to have heritage of a people who are following God as your heritage. I'm sure there was some priest that was like, I'll take the land over the people any day. But priests are given this job by identity. They don't even have a choice. They're called Levites. That's because they come from the tribe of Levi. So you're born into that. You just don't get a choice. You receive that as a gift. Just like I have, I'm a rye savvy. I did not choose to be a rye savvy. I did not ask that. I did not send in the papers to become a rye savvy. I received that identity as a gift. At times I wonder if it was a gift. But that's kind of how priests came in to be. They just received it. They didn't really have a choice. But the office of the priest is they got to do stuff. They got to be in the presence of God more than the average person did. They got to feel the tangible presence of God. They got to be in and, 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 and give sacrifices. They got to feel the holiness of God at times. And Peter says, because of Jesus Christ, you are a royal priesthood. And some of us, we, we talk about this 
we're priests. Like this is what this thing is. This church is a community of priests. People that are called to, to deliver the presence of God. That's what a priest is. They, they get to serve in the presence of God and they, they stand as mediators between God and people. And so they get to deliver the presence of God to people. And that is now, as a Christian, your job description. You are a deliverer of the presence of God to people. Not because you're gifted to do it. Some of you are like, oh, I'm an introvert, so I'm not, I don't deliver the presence of God like someone else. It doesn't have that exclusion here for you. If you are a Christian, you are a deliverer of the presence of God. Not by gifting, but by identity. But you are also, priests are examples of God's holiness. That's why they had to wash certain ways. That's why they had to wear certain things. They had to stand out. They had to be separate. They had to be different from the average person who owned land. And so I've come up with a couple of examples of the ways in which we as Christians display the holiness of God. Now, holy is a word that simply means to be set apart. But some of us have it in our minds that the holiness that's talked about is moral rightness or moral wrongness. And that's not the only way we display God's holiness. Yes, as Christians, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are called to put off deceit, put off lying. Why? Because the God that we reflect is the God of truth, not the God of deceit or lie. Actually, that's the other guy. That's the enemy. That's Satan. He's called the great deceiver. And so we don't lie because morally lying is opposite of who God is. Not just because it's a bad idea to do. I want to get this out of your mind, all these little sins of of holiness. Like I don't do this and I don't do this and I do this. I'm saying think of it as your holiness is a direct reflection of the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He doesn't lie. He's truth. So I don't lie. You have to put this off. That's an example of, I think, moral holiness. Also, I love, not because love is just a good moral thing to do, but because God is love. That's why I love. But I think there's also character holiness on things and issues that aren't necessarily morally right or wrong. They're kind of in the middle, like money. Some of you think money is morally wrong. It's not. It's not morally wrong. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money. Many people misquote that often. Have you ever been quoted that? Money is the root of all evil? That's actually not what the Scripture says. It's the love of money that is roots of all kinds of evil. That's what the Scripture says. But how a Christian thinks about money can be good or it can be bad. You can think of money as something that's owed to you. It's not. As a Christian... We are stewards of the money that God gives to us. That means we are like the banker who takes someone's money and uses it wisely as a way of stewardship. But then there's, then there's this idea of character holiness, which is, is simply things that are not morally um, right or wrong. And, and here's one thing that's kind of coming out for us as Urban Gracers that I really stress because I think it's something that's been badly neglected in the church, creativity. I think we can be holy about the way we think of creativity. 
And here's, here's why I say that. Because creativity is something that's actually rooted in the character of God. Did you know, for those of you, some of you who are creative types, you get excited about this. Did you know that God is the creator? Did you know that you like to be creative because you are built in the image of God and he likes to create things? Did you know that's why you like creating things? Did you know that Pinterest is so popular now because in your DNA you like to create new things? Not because you like to be cool, although some of you can use it for that. And here's the difference. We can express God's holiness and our creativity through saying, I'm not creative to get attention and get on Pinterest. I'm not creative just to show how cool I am or how awesome I am. I am creative because I am born in the image of God, my creator. And so we encourage our bands, be creative. Isn't it too bad that for too long, Churches have expressed the holiness of God and creativity by being horrible creators. Like how many of you have experienced like bad Christian something? Isn't it too bad that the one place on earth that actually has a reason to be creative is sometimes the least creative place on the planet? And I feel we have an opportunity to express God's holiness here. And here's how I want you to use it. When someone says, wow, that's really creative, you can now use that as a way to talk about your God and say, I'm so glad you asked. Because I'm creative because I worship the Creator. And when He made me, He was really creative. And all I'm doing is reflecting that so I can point and glorify Him. And now you're set apart from the average person. Did you know that? By doing that, you set yourself apart from the rest of society that now says creativity is for people outside of the church. It says creativity is something that's, that, that just people that don't love Jesus do. It's, no. Something that people that love Jesus should be able to do. Because we are reflectors, we are priests who are called to speak about God's holiness that way. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. won't spend any time on that. He doesn't say we should try to be a holy nation. He just says we are. You're set apart. You're different. Fourthly, we are proclaimers. See that? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Isn't that awesome? That you are a... You're a a chosen race, your ethnicity is in Jesus Christ. Who you are, you're, you're a priest called to proclaim God's holiness. You are holy, you are set apart, and you are proclaimers of that. That's what you are as a Christian. That's not what you aspire to be, that's what you are. You have been given this. And the question really is, for you and I, not are, will you be that, but but. What kind of proclaimer will you be? What kind of holiness? What kind of priesthood will you reflect? You don't have a choice in being a proclaimer. The question is, what kind of proclaimer will you be? So this verse describes that we proclaim like people who have moved from darkness to light. 
You know, we don't talk much about sharing our faith here because I don't simply want to on Sunday morning say, you guys should really share your faith more. I just don't believe we need that kind of talk. What we need are people who share what Jesus has done in their life more. When we talk about being on mission and proclaiming and sharing, you know, the gospel, some people are like, well, what do I say? Here's what you say. What has Jesus done in your life? I think you need to think less of what you should say to people who do not yet believe about Jesus, and you should just talk more about what Jesus has done for you. That that is sharing your faith. You used to always get this all the time. Well, I'm not really good at evangelism. I can't really do it because I don't know what to say. And I said, so Jesus has done nothing in your life? Well, no, he saved me. Tell them that. Say that. What do you say to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus? Tell them what he's done in your life. Some you say, well, that will get me in trouble. Yeah, now you're starting to understand why Peter says, you will face trials when you begin to do this. You will be tested as you proclaim the excellencies of him. You will be tested as you attempt to live out who you are. You will be tested as you become priests who proclaim God's holiness and creativity. Sometimes you'll get laughed at. We should be grateful for that because in some places they get killed for that. All we're going to get is a couple of laughs, maybe lose a couple of jobs. And so as I said, when we believe in Jesus and we act upon that, we will find that our passion for Jesus will be consistently tested so that we can find out what's in our own hearts. And so a lot of a lot of information here this morning. I'm not trying to overload you with information. It's just such a rich text. But as I close, that's, that's simply the last part of it. Just says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, just know that if you're called to be part of this holy nation, to be part of this priesthood, that you are being called to a side of battle. Peter doesn't shy away from it. He says, it will wage war against your soul. You have to get this in your head, that this is not going to be easy. Living out your life, living out your holiness, living out your identity in Jesus is not mean, does not mean that your life suddenly gets easier. Many times, most times, it means your life actually gets more difficult. But Peter says you can expect that. I urge you not to be sojourners and exiles. He said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So imagine you're in a, you're in a country where you, don't, you, ha- you have the credentials to be there. Some of you have traveled overseas. I've never traveled overseas. But you have the credentials to be there. You have the right passport. You're allowed into the country, and yet you feel so out of the culture. You feel like, I I do not belong in this kind of culture. And Peter, Peter says, yeah, as a Christian, you're going to feel this. You're going to feel like, I don't belong here. And Peter says, because you don't. You belong in heaven. And while you're here, Jesus is going to test you and your life is going to test you 
and your sinful nature is going to wage war against your soul. And people are going to try and take away everything that you have. And he says, always remember, you're in exile. You just are traveling through this country, but your home is in heaven. And it's a tough word for us. That's why we called our message tested. That's why it feels like we're slugging through some of this stuff. Because I think some of you are facing this kind of stuff day in and day out, and you're tired. You're tired of being tested. And so we need to reevaluate, understand where, who we are, our identity. We need to, to feed on the Word of God that will tell us over and over again, hang in there. Gather in groups together. Preach the gospel to one another. Love one another. Put off envy, maliciousness, hypocrisy while you're here so that you can continue to look towards the goal of heaven where Jesus will make everything in your life right. And so as we close, I just want to invite you uh, to think through these things as we partake in the family meal. We've talked about this idea of family. We talk about it very regularly. And so this is our family meal. This is a, this is a symbol. Uh, these are symbols that Jesus gave to us when he said, when you gather as a family, I want you to consider the hope you have in me, made available through me. That's where our hope is. That hope of heaven comes because Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfectly sinless life, died a very unjust death so that he could pay the penalty of sin for your life and receive relationship and love from God. He did that through his death, his sacrifice on the cross, and he accomplished victory over death by rising again. And he says, all I'm asking you to do is week in, week out, when you gather as a family, I want you to remember that. I want you to celebrate that. And so we say as a family, if you don't consider yourself part of that family, if you do not yet believe those things about Jesus Christ, we would ask that you refrain from partaking of the family meal. All I have to do is go back to chapter 2, verse 1. and says, don't pretend that you're part of the family if you're not. In the end, you're not fooling anyone. Instead, believe in Jesus Christ. Become part of the family. It is that simple. Jesus says, through faith in me, through faith in me, no one will be put to shame. If you believe this about me, no one will be put to shame. And so I would invite those who do believe that to come and to celebrate the family meal.